This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. First Draft highlights the voices of writers as they discuss their work, their craft, and the literary arts. My guest is George Saunders. He is the author of four collections of short stories, including Pastoralia, Civil Warland and Bad Decline, Persuasion Nation, and 10th of December, which was nominated for a 2013 National Book Award for Fiction. This interview was done after 10th of December was published, and before his Man Booker Prize-winning first novel, Lincoln in the Bardo, had been completed. Saunders also writes nonfiction and teaches creative writing at Syracuse University. Saunders is known for the humor, satirical voice, and humanity he brings to his stories. We began the interview talking about his parents' sense of humor and what his household was like growing up. Real lively. They were they were young when they had us, and they had. I mean, I just remember the house being a lot of fun. You know, like um, kind of. And I had my my dad was from the South Side of Chicago, and my mom was from the Texas Panhandle, and both from really funny, really kind of vivacious families. And the, so the humor style was different in each case, but the, what they had in common was that if you could, uh, you know, if you could sort of hold the room, whether through humor or through a good story or whatever, then you, you could, you were respected. And it was, I, I, I remember just feeling that it was kind of a powerful thing to be verbal, you know, and that wasn't, it wasn't a place where you were told to be quiet or whatever. So, uh, and then on both sides, these relatives, really funny storytellers would just sort of show up and, uh, I kind of remember the kid almost like a, I don't know, like a feeling of real happiness when one of them would show up in a good mood and be ready to, you know, to share something. So I think, I, I remember uh, Gino Diaz telling me once that he thought um, writers came out of uh, situations where language was understood to be power. And I thought that that was really, the, you know, in our house. And uh, so, it, you know, it was almost like because that was such a, a natural way of expression, I, I, it took me a while to figure out that it could also be a literary way of expression. And that was kind of a big, you know, big breakthrough for me when when those two rivers kind of kind of came together finally. One of the things you do is put an artificial constraint on some of your stories. For example, your story "Semplica Girl Diaries" is told through a diary format. Is such a constraint helpful because the world is just so big, or is it just that you're adding something to make the story more of a puzzle as you're writing? What is that about? It's, it's both things that you said. It, you know, it definitely makes me feel like, uh, you know, I can't take on 360 degrees of the world, but I can take on this one thing, this one sliver, with the assumption that if I take it on intensely enough, the whole world will sort of make an appearance there like that. But the other more sort of, you know, honest reason is that, uh, I, you know, I think as writers, we're trying to get the language to come alive in a way that forbids a reader to take to leave, you know. And that actually is kind of a mysterious process. I mean, for, for language to have charm uh, is no one has ever figured that out, really. Uh, and some people can do it and some people can't. And really, when you get right down to it, I think the writers that we love are writers whose prose, you know, grabs us and becomes intimate with us. And I don't think there are any rules for that. So I, I would say that one of the things a writer has to do, well, certainly when she's young, but probably throughout, is be real honest about what kind of prose can I make that captivates, you know. Uh, and there's, you know, you, you have an idea of, of what kind of prose you want to write, but sometimes the reality will set you straight. So for me, somehow when I put a constraint on prose, it always makes the result weird and kind of um, 
don't know how to describe it except sticky, you know, and, and I don't really know why that is, but, you know, with, with my first book, the constraint was uh, first person present tense in a theme park, you know, uh, and that kind of got me off some more archaic ways of writing that I'd gotten in the habit of. But I just find if I, you know, if I say, I'm, okay, I'm writing a corporate memo or it's a, a letter format or something like that, it just gives me enough, um, like a little sliver of reality to work with that makes the language somehow, it, it gives me good ideas of, it gives me ideas of fun things to do with sentences, I guess is really the truth, you know. Um, I don't really know why. I, I don't know, but but I notice that it's true, and I don't really, in a sense, don't care why it's true. I'm just, you know, it's almost like a uh, uh, a helpful hint, you know, if you knew that you always looked great when you wore bright yellow, you just wear bright yellow, you know, that kind of thing. So when you are going to start a new story and you are looking at the page, is there fear and anxiety involved in that? Oh, yeah. You know there is. Yeah, of course. But what I've done over the years is just is just avoid that moment. I, I would always uh, have four or five things going on at once. And if, you know, I caught something from one story that seemed kind of good, I'd pronounce it a new story and put it over here. And uh, so, I, I mean, for me, that moment is so terrifying. But, you know, maybe not terrifying, but here's what happens to me. When I have a blank page, I start having ideas, you know. Here's what I want to do next, or here's what I want to show, or my theme. And that, for me, is the kiss of death. You know, I, I uh, that, that I really try to uh, evade that kind of intentionality, just because, again, I know myself, and, and if I have an intent, an intention, I just tend to execute it in a very straightforward way boring way so uh you know for me the blank page is just it means that my literal mind kind of rushes in to fill the gap so i i do think that i'll you know cut something in one story and just say okay well you didn't belong in that story go over here sit there for a while resonate quietly don't bother me and then you know in three months i'll come back to you and pretend like you're the beginning of another story and you know when you're doing a lot of revision that's it works because you're not really uh that's just some mush that you're going to play with later you know it's just dough you're going to use later uh, and uh, I guess my operating assumption is that your subconscious is pretty smart, and it spits things out that it needs you to use. Now, sometimes it's also dumb, and it puts it in the wrong story or in the wrong, you know, part of the story. Uh, but yeah, I don't think I've had a truly blank desk for about, you know, 22 years or something like that. So you let things cool, and then you heat them up again. Yeah, yeah. Because I guess the assumption is that you know, if there was anything in it, it's still there. You know, if you I mean, if you go back and read a story that you wrote 20 years ago that you like, there's still something popping there. So, again, I don't know whether it's true or not, but I think so much of what writers uh, sort of, you know, um, institutionalize in, in their own practice has to do with not what's absolutely true, but what works. It's very pragmatic and kind of almost superstitious. So for me, the, the thing that's really worked over the years is to say that your, um, your prose isn't delicate. And you don't have to memorize a certain line that you thought of as you were walking through the park. And you don't have to, you know, outline. Uh, you don't have to take notes on conversations. You just have to show up. And if an idea is good, it'll keep coming back again and again, even if you totally forget about it. Uh, if a you know, two-page section is good, but you can't finish it, it'll still be good in five years. Uh, almost like my, my working model, that the subconscious has this beautiful story in, in it. It's there perfect. And then we go to tell it and we drop it and it shatters and we kick part of it under the couch. But And rewriting is sort of reassembling that a little bit. Now, is that true? I have no idea. But for me, that model works because it, it sort of, um, you know, uh, introduces a, a, a kind of 
kind of self-mercy. So instead of beating myself up about it or worrying about, you know, if I'll forget something I need to do or if I'll overlook it, if you imagine your, your creative process is very generous, kind of like your pal, then it just goes easier, you know. Uh, revising, yeah, this, you know, this part sucks right now. I'll get it. Don't worry. You'll get it. You know, you've got an infinite time. You, you'll get it. And for me, that, that kind of mindset works a lot better than, you know, waiting for the muse or castigating yourself because you screwed up this section. That, that part doesn't, it doesn't, it's not productive for me. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest is short story writer and novelist George Saunders, winner of the Man Booker Prize for his novel Lincoln in the Bardo. This interview focuses on his National Book Award nominee short story collection, 10th of December. So when you work on stories over long periods of time, how do you account for the changes within yourself? Maybe you've changed over the course of a few years while you are working on a story or your ideas are different. Do you notice that at all? Yes, and I think it's circular because oftentimes the story, working on the story is one of the things that's changing in the first place. You know what I mean? Like all the work that you're doing on the story, it forces certain falsenesses out of you and causes you to think about things you haven't thought about before. And often I think, a sto- in my case, the story itself will get me into a fix. Like a, um, your original idea of the story will paint you into a corner. And you can't get out of that corner unless you uh, drop your early assumptions about the story. So I've often found, like, um, you know, I'll start a story in a certain voice with a certain idea about it and then get to a place where I'm stuck. And, and and lately, I started to realize that stuckness is a gift. It's not a it's not it's not a mistake you're making. It's not a problem. It's it's just the story saying, "I'm very sorry, but I can't proceed under these conditions." You know, you're, you're going to have to be. Uh, oh, it's almost like in a relationship. You know, someone says, "I'm sorry, but you can't keep treating me like this. You you don't have a capacious enough vision of me. We're going to have to break up." You know, and then in this case, the writer says, "Oh, okay, let's take some time off," and then he goes off, but. That conversation is in his mind or in his subconscious. And then I sometimes when I come back, the, the voice has changed, indeed, because I've changed while I was gone because I was thinking about what the story told me. So, I, again, I'm sort of not being articulate about it, but it's, it's a process in which you're, um, the story keeps demanding that you see it uh, more largely and your voice is going to change and your assumptions are going to change. And I mean, I can give you a small example, which is just, I had a story called Bohemians that was in my, I think my second book. And I had, uh, it's, an, it's these two women who, who had uh, lived through the Holocaust, and there's a little boy described, and they live in this neighborhood. And my shtick, my sort of concept of the story, was that the one lady who'd been through the worst Holocaust experience was totally luminous and sweet. And the other one who'd been through a relatively minor thing was a total meaning, you know, real cruel. So I don't know why. I thought that was kind of cool, you know. I, you know, so I wrote it, and I had one little section in there that was kind of stupid. It was a, uh, it was the nicer of the two ladies who'd been through the bad stuff, remembering the time in Eastern Europe before the war. And I had never, have never been to this part of the world before, so I just kind of was doing an imitation Isaac Bobble, you know, kind of this exotica description of of pre-war Europe. And it was wobbly. It was kind of you know, it just felt made up and kind of kind of false. But I just I, I just kept it in the story. And every time I come back to and read it, I hit that paragraph and go, ugh, yuck, cringy, you know. Uh, so one day after I'd come back to it and I just was kind of walking around or taking a shower or something and thinking, 
what, what's my problem with that story? Like, why is that section so false? And why do I keep refusing to cut it? You know, and it kind of degenerated into, why are you so false? Why are you such a liar there? You know, and at one point, just as I was, you know, well, self-flagellating, in, you know, in my mind, um, the pronoun slipped. And instead of saying, why am I such a liar? I said, why is she such a liar? And suddenly a light went off. And I'm like, oh, my God, that's that prose that's, you know, that's weak isn't her. It's me. Or rather, the other way, it's not my weak prose. It's hers. Her prose is weak because she's not telling the truth. And suddenly the story became, here's this woman who they claimed to be in the Holocaust who, who wasn't. Um, and the story, you know, I finished it in like two days. But that was after a four-year stall at that point. You know, so this is kind of one of the examples where I I stopped there because that paragraph was so bad and I couldn't go on. I couldn't go on because my relation to the material was false. And then with that catastrophic shower moment, suddenly my relation to the story was true. You know, so that so I don't know. You know, that's not exactly a stable career to have, but um, that, that's kind of how it goes for me for some reason. And what about collaboration with editors? A lot of your stories have been in The New Yorker, and I've heard you talking with Deborah Treisman about, you know, when she's come to you and, and even worked out a story days before it was supposed to be in print. What is that yeah. experience for you? I love it. And I love her. She's just a genius of editing. So we, and we worked together so long and almost like, uh, you know, in the movies, the two, two cops who've been through everything together. I just trust her 100%. In this book, there's a story called Puppy, and uh, it's kind of a two-part, two-voice thing. And one of the women, women in the story is kind of upper middle class, and the other one is lower middle class. And they have this kind of, you know, uh, not exactly a confrontation. But anyway, in the, I sent a draft to the New Yorker, and, and Deborah rejected it. And she said there was something off about it, and she was very diagnostic. She said, you, in that draft, the, uh, <clears throat> the sort of white trash woman her diction was too low. I had been, I uh, really kind of, <clears throat> in her view, um, well, when you read it, you felt like the writer was kind of kicking that woman a little bit. It was taking a little too much pleasure at her uh, malapropisms and so on. And I, at first I thought, well, no, I, I don't think so. I think I'm pretty accurate. I, you know, I know that speech and everything. And then I thought, well, yeah, you might be accurate, but if it's undercutting the, the story's power, who cares? You know, not, none of it's accurate, really. So I went in and I just mechanically... Um, eliminated about half of the errors that she was making in her speech. And I left enough there that there was a suggestion of sort of a dialect, but, um, you know, just made her smarter. And suddenly the story, you know, seemed to be kind of working because they were almost like two pieces of, you know, two trees that had fallen and were leaning against each other delicately but equally, you know. And so I thought that was a brilliant, very perceptive thing on, on Deborah's part. It was sort of counterintuitive. I was priding myself on the fact that I'd, you know, done such a good job of, of generating this dialect. So so that kind of relationship, you just have to hope, you know, that she will edit you forever. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest is short story writer and novelist George Saunders, winner of the Man Booker Prize for his novel Lincoln and the Bardo. This interview focuses on his National Book Award nominee short story collection, 10th of December. One of the things I notice about your stories in 10th of December is many of them have very strong internal voices, meaning the thoughts in your characters' heads are very loud. And I mean that in a good way. Their consciousness is quite clear and distinct. And I'm wondering your thoughts about this internal dialogue. Some beginning writing teachers might tell you not to do something like that. 
for me, when I'm reading anyway, what's really going on is I'm hitting, you know, phrase after phrase, and they're either keeping me in or pushing me away. They're either making a world show up in my mind or they're not. There's kind of a verbal energy that, uh, for me, is the main the main basis, you know, uh, for deciding whether to go on or not. So I guess my thought is I'm a big fan of action, but but really well done internal monologue is a form of action, I would say. You know, when when, when you see Shakespeare and someone's declaiming in these incredible this incredible poetry, it never feels, you know, flat or dull. It feels like the action it's the it's the human mind at work. So for me that distinction the only thing I know sometimes is I'll be typically those pieces that have a lot of internal monologue will be there'll be a real long four or five page swath of internal monologue that I kind of burst out and play with for a while, you know, without any thought of it being, uh, you know, manageable in length. And then at some point I will sometimes go back and say, okay, let's, let's edit this. And the basis for editing is, um, you know, is it reasonable that a person would have this thought at this moment? Is it reasonable that a person would have this length of thought or this type of thought stream under these conditions? And often I'll find myself punctuating it with some kind of nominal action, you know, and really the only reason is just to make it sort of, to give it a kind of verisimilitude so it doesn't just look like a big, boring... Well, it doesn't look like a writer typing a bunch of thoughts, you know. So so I think those things are all part of it. But I would, you know, again, I think the way you... Um, the way one finds oneself on originality is to say, yeah, I know that rule. I'm not ignoring it, but I'm also not slavishly following it. I'm going to try to find a way around it, you know. So when you go to when you go out in the world and you're sitting at a coffee shop or whatever, do you really look around and and make up stories for the people you see about what you think they think and who they are? No, no, not really. No, I don't. I, I kind of I just try to listen. You know, I try to be there and, and uh, uh, just absorb data. But really, um, and again, this is just for me. I don't, I'm sure this is you know general, but I I like to not do it unless I'm doing it. Like if I'm Writing, I, I want to write, but if I'm in the world, I'd rather not be planning or plotting, you know, because then what happens to me anyway is, you know, let's say I overhear some cool thing that somebody said, then uh, I go to write that, and somehow there's an ulterior motive. You know, you're trying to cash in on something you heard, uh, especially if you're in the middle of a story and you try to insert that. Um, I think that's, I don't know, for me, it just taints the procedure a little bit. I'd rather just start with the purest uninflected little blip, you know, of some language, and then let the story form itself around that organically. Um, and again, that, this, there's no, you know, reason for that, except that when I was younger, I would do it the way you describe. I'd go out and hear, and, you know, to a lot of, like, in, in honor to Hemingway, I'd listen to waiters a lot, thinking of all his Spanish stories, you know, or the waiters were always in there, and come back and put that down. And somehow, for me, it just didn't, it was too contrived or something. So, again, my working theory is just that I'm not writing unless I'm writing, and when I'm writing, I'm going to try to have as little notion of what what the aim is as possible, and then in that vacuum, it means that the the um, actual energy of the story will be somehow understood and honored, uh, and that's it. And so sometimes in the midst of that, you might, you know, you need something, like you need uh, a bit showing this, or you need a flashback. Then I just kind of open up my mind and go, well, what would look, what would work here, you know? And something will come in, and sometimes it's invented, and sometimes it's remembered. But if you do it that way, the thing that comes in will be double duty. It will be a flashback. And also, because at that moment you're totally immersed in the story, it'll be somehow appropriate in a very 
special way. You know, in other words, if you need, there'll be some metaphorical stuff going on that you didn't even plan. But because you were fully in the in the creative moment when you summoned it, that bit, it's coming with a little extra charge to it. You know, um, so anyway, that's again, I, that's just my theory, and I, I think all I've done over the years is figure out what works for me. Well, I'm wondering if you can read a brief passage from an author that speaks to you or influenced you as a writer. Sure. This is uh, a passage from this beautiful Chekhov story called Gooseberries, and uh, it's just kind of an, an internal monologue. This guy, he's actually making a, he's actually talking to some people at a, uh, a little gathering. But he says, and, he, and he's talking here about a brother of his who um, is a really happy, kind of irritatingly happy guy. So he says. I thought, after all, what a lot of contented, happy people there must be. What an overwhelming power that means. Every happy man should have an unhappy man in his closet with a hammer. To remind him by his constant tapping that not everyone is happy. And that sooner or later, however happy he may be, life will show him its claws. And some misfortune will befall him. Illness, poverty, loss. And then no one will see or hear him, just as he now neither sees nor hears others. But there's no man with a hammer. And the happy go on living, just a little fluttered with the petty cares of every day, like an aspen tree in the wind, and everything is all right. And so tell me a little bit more about why you chose that. Well, I think it's, um, for me, it's kind of a, a bit of a uh, rationale for fiction, or especially maybe for dark fiction, you know, the idea that just because life is good for you, uh, it's really important to remember that it's not the case everywhere. Just because you have ascended to a, <clears throat> a place of affluence or success or love, um, that doesn't mean that, you know, poverty uh, and hatred and so on don't exist somewhere. And so one of the functions of fiction can be just to say, hey, here's an imaginary case where somebody has a really terrible day. Would you go there for 20 minutes and just remember that such people exist, you know? And the other reason is that in, in, the, in the context of the larger story, uh, you know, it's a beautiful sentiment. And I think it's probably Chekhov's feelings, and I totally agree with the statement. But in the story, he gives it to this kind of blowhard guy, this kind of mansplainer, you know, uh, luxury guy. And just after he gives his speech, he goes up to bed and he's there with a friend and they're sleeping in two single beds with a table between them. And this lecturing guy lectures a little more and goes to sleep very happily, very unhappily. Kind of, and his friend is kept awake by the, um, this pipe that the mansplainer has left in the middle of the table, you know, a smelly pipe. So it's kind of a great way uh, of putting a really earnest sentiment in the story and then undercutting it by, by attributing it to a guy who's kind of uh, self-centered and preachy. But, you know, it's a nice technique. And how about if you can read a passage from something you wrote? It could have been something that was hard to write or something that changed from the first draft or something you feel like you succeeded at. Sure. Well, this is from the title story in this new book. And... Um, it's just a, it's a guy who's actually he's actually gone off into the uh, winter uh, day to to kill himself. He's got a brain tumor and he, he's going to try to uh, sort of you know take that cup away from his parents or his, his children rather. So this is a part where he is um, his mind kind of swerves towards his kids. So I'll read it and I'll tell you why I, what what was hard about it. Um, he says, uh, uh, "Where was he? The duck pond. So many times he'd come out here with the kids. He should go now." Goodbye, Duck Pond. Although, hang on. He couldn't seem to stand. Plus, you couldn't leave a couple of little kids behind. Not this close to water. They were four and six. For God's sake, what have you been thinking? Leaving those two little deers by the pond. They were good kids. They'd wait, but wouldn't they get bored and swim? 
had to stay. Poor kids. Poor abandoned. Wait, rewind. His kids were excellent swimmers. His kids had never come close to being abandoned. His kids were grown. Tom was 30. Paul drank of water. Tried so hard to know things. But even when he thought he knew a thing, fighting kites, breeding rabbits, Tom would soon be shown for what he was. The dearest, most agreeable young fellow ever, who knew no more about fighting kites, breeding rabbits than the average person could pick up from 10 minutes on the internet. But not that Tom wasn't smart. Tom was smart. Tom was a damn quick study. Oh, Tom, Tommy, Tomikins. A heart in that kid. He just worked and worked for the love of his dad. Oh, kid, you had it. You have it. Tom, Tommy, even now I am thinking of you. You are very much on my mind. So with that, the, the thing about this, and it was kind of a very small break for me, is in, in the original draft, I had a little joke up there when he first turns his mind to his son, Tom. Um, I had just a little throwaway line about Tom having, I think it was some critical and like having wide hips or something. It was a, jo- a little a little joke. Uh, and I kind of did it to, for the reason that we do it, which is you feel insecure about the sentiment uh, that's coming to the surface. So I was trying to kind of stave that off a bit. And then very late in the game, when the rest of the story kind of formed around it, I thought, why, why would he think of his son that way at that critical moment? You know, this is almost the last thought he's ever going to have of his beloved son in this life, he thinks. Uh, and I thought, I, I wouldn't think that way about my child. I wouldn't think about their defects or their problems or their, you know, I would think of them so affectionately. Uh, and so I cut that. And then, and it just, at least, you know, when I was revising, it made it made a kind of light come into the scene and really increased the emotion because he was, uh, instead of trying to make him sort of a vehicle for my joke or my self-deprecation or my, you know, he was uh, as close to me as I could get him. He was an honest person who was, you know, really, really loved his family. And where do you write? Uh, we have, we live up in the Catskill, and I have a little, there's a little tool shed that we, we model. It's about uh, maybe 50 yards from the house. And uh, so it's just a little beautiful little box uh, with no internet. And I just wander out there in the morning and stay for four or five hours. What do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? Well, really, I these days it's more the opposite. I just I don't want to get away from it. But if I do need a little break, I've got, um, <clears throat> I've got four or five guitars in the basement of our house and a little recording studio. So sometimes if I get stuck, I'll just go down there and play for half an hour. And that seems to do something, you know, neurologically interesting. It kind of, uh, you know, it kind of rewires things a bit. And who do you show your work to first to get feedback? Uh, to my wife. We, we've been married 27 years, and we, we met in the, uh, the Syracuse Creative Writing Program. And she just, you know, she just knows me inside and out and can really tell when I'm, uh, you know, swerving away from the, the heart of a story. And, and, you know, more on a real uh, kind of a deep emotional level, she can kind of tell when I'm, when I'm bringing the real stuff. And she's, you know, she just, just tells me. It's really helpful. How have you dealt with rejection? Pouting. Pouting is good. Uh, I think I think you just see it. I think I see it. Try to see it as a process. You know, your your first reaction is going to be kind of anger, and you're going to try to shoot the messenger a little bit. Uh, so that's okay. That's normal. And then give it a little time, and the heat will kind of fade it, and you'll start to see well, maybe there's a little bit in what that you know that criticism. And then I think the last step is to just be kind of clear up the pain of it, and you know the hurt, and be willing to scan it and say, well, is there anything in there that I urgently need? And that's really the. I think that's the real artist. I had, I had a review a couple of years ago where somebody said a bunch of negative things and it really hurt, you know, and it was a bad day. But in that review somewhere, the person had said uh, that I that I write better from 
out of love than out of anger. And at first I thought, yeah, I don't know about that. And then as everything else faded away, that line stuck with me. I thought that is so true, you know, and it's helped me so much, you know, in, in uh, when I get to a critical point of story, I'll kind of call it up. So I think it's good to, uh, you know, to, to let it hit you anyway, and then your your body and your mind are going to do whatever they do, but then something will remain, and that's usually pretty useful. And what is your favorite word? Well, I like all of them, but I think, you know what, I, a word I love is autumnal. I, don't, I, I just love the sound of it, and I love that, that season, and somehow uh, that, that word calls all of it up in a, in a kind of a sensory way for me. Autumnal. You've been listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. My guest was George Saunders, author of Lincoln and the Bardo, The Tenth of December, Civil Warland and Bad Decline, and others. You can follow First Draft on Facebook. Just look for First Draft, a dialogue on writing and click like, and on Twitter at First Draft APR. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. Thanks for listening.